I think there's far more dynamism than what we've ever allowed higher ed to have. And even this thinking about it being a lifetime of exchanges is different uh, than, than where we've been. It's not just four years in a box or two years in a box. Um, it's far more organic, far more fluid. And to be honest, I think that's far more thrilling. So I think our future is seeing ways that higher ed fits into people's lives, not just as a one-time experience, but a series of engagements, uh, transactions, um, and, um, and relationship building uh, with real people that, that will change the face of, of higher ed. Welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CHELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CHELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelep. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris Olson, and I am your host. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Rick Bailey, who is the founder and principal of the higher ed marketing firm and very appropriately named RHB. Rick brings more than 30 years of experience in not-for-profit marketing to his work, including work in fundraising, public relations, college admissions, and marketing communications. He began his career at his alma mater, Spring Arbor University, a church-related liberal arts college where he managed church and college relations, development, and admissions programs. He completed graduate courses in higher ed administration at Michigan State University, then served on the staff of Imprint Inc. for eight years before launching his own firm in 1991. He is a frequent conference speaker at regional and national meetings of educational organizations, taught for 13 years as an adjunct professor of marketing at the University of Notre Dame, 
Mendoza College of Business. His first book, Coherence, How Telling the Truth Will Advance Your Cause and Save the World, recently took the top prize in the National Indie Excellence Book Awards business category. And I understand that just this week, uh, Rick released uh, a new edition of Coherence. So I'm very excited um, to learn more about that and uh, have him tell us uh, what's going to be new and different about the the new release. So, Rick, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to be with you. And kudos on the launch of this podcast. Yeah, it's uh, been. I'm really happy for you. This is this has been great. Well, thank you. And I, it has been uh, really a wonderful way to have some conversations with leading edge thinkers across all different aspects of higher ed, of which you very much are a leading edge thinker. And so I'm looking forward to getting your thoughts uh, today uh, in this conversation about all kinds of important things <laughs> as it relates to higher ed. So I like to start out each episode by asking our guests about their professional journeys. And so maybe you could tell us about your journey and where the inspiration for RHB comes from? Sure. So um, I actually thought I was going to do something entirely different in my life. I began my career working for my alma mater, Spring Arbor. And um, just before I graduated mid-year, I graduated in December and the president of the university had lunch with me one day and he said, what are you going to do? And I kind of explained a few things that I was thinking about. And he said, well, I think for the next several months, you ought to work for the university and help us out raising money in the development office and be our director of annual fund. That wasn't on my radar at all, but I just thought it would be a blast. So I agreed to fill in for somebody who was leaving mid-contract, mid and um, I became the director of the annual fund. And once we got through our first successful phonathon and a few direct mail successes, I thought, development, huh? This could be a blast. So I stayed in that uh, area for several years. I ended up at one point being the director of alumni relations and parent relations. I was the director of communications and PR before we, before we called it marketing. And uh, after a presidential switch, I became head of admissions and um, whatever we used to call marketing. So um, as a very young person, I was given a lot of great uh, responsibility, probably more responsibility than I merited, and um, was given a position on the president's cabinet at a way too young age. Um, but it attracted the attention of an organization in South Bend, Indiana, that was wanting to build a agency relationship with colleges and universities. So I went to work for Imprint. And uh, after about uh, eight years there, uh, as agency life can be, it, it sort of erupted and, and um, I was looking for a job. My wife, Tammy, who is now my business partner, suggested that I start my own firm. I thought she was nuts. <laughs> and um, she kept saying, no, you should you should do your own. And and my litmus test was to say, OK, if you'll go in 50 50 with me, I'll do it. 
And I thought for sure she'd say no. Instead, she said, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> so um, we started RHB in 1991. Uh, we lasted in our living room for about, oh, I don't know, eight weeks before we had to find an office. And uh, we started because we wanted to help um, serve organizations for whom we had passion. So we broadly started with not-for-profit organizations. Uh, later in our history, we, we focused entirely on higher ed. But uh, our interest was, was to help great causes succeed. And we wanted, wanted organizations and institutions that had great purpose in the world to be their very best. And the way we knew to do that was to help them predominantly with their, with their marketing in the management of their own positioning. So that's the, that's the inspiration and that's how RHB came to be. And RHB is named for you, obviously. Yes. But Tammy, Tammy is a very wise, uh, wise woman ahead of her time because she obviously could see. Oh man, yeah. she's she's a tremendous entrepreneur and visionary. Um, yeah. In fact, last year I asked her if she would take over as CEO, mm. and she is running the ship beautifully, and it's allowing me to be um, more committed to writing and thinking and planning and visioning and. That's been terrific. And that's really where your sweet spot is. I mean, your your ability to see things that other people can't see and that creativity, um, which has been such a, uh, a great asset for RHB over the years. That's that's wonderful. You have more time to nurture that. Well, you know, you're other, kind. Well, I, I've seen this firsthand. I've worked for institutions that have benefited from that. So that's, I know from whence I speak here. <laughs> but the other thing I want to point out, Rick, is I'm struck by the fact that you got on your career path because somebody saw something in you and called it out. Yeah, and maybe yeah. they didn't they didn't call it out specifically, but they, they recruited you for a position, which yeah. is very similar to how I got started. It's, it's, and it, it, it's a, a theme I'm hearing in asking this question of many of our podcast guests. So it's just interesting. And it says to me, boy, isn't that important for those of us um, who now are established in our careers to turn around and do that for other people? Well, you know, I think that's indicative of the higher ed culture in that um, in the first place, not many of us knew that there were careers to be made out of serving institutions. Or right. um, like nobody grows up thinking, and for the most part, I'm going to be the director of marketing for a, a university. They might be interested in business or marketing, but not think about it in a university setting. And um, there are so many roles that make an institution work that you almost have to be lured into it by somebody who has already experienced it. And um, I'm so grateful for uh, Dr. Elwood Voller, who saw something in me that I didn't see and, and would never have imagined, but he set me on a path that I, I would never have pictured myself on at the time. Mm, mm, yeah, and that's, isn't that, uh, and you remember his name as if it was yesterday. Oh, man, great influence on me. Yeah. yeah. 
Let, let me ask you, because um, I know you're an avid reader of everything that's out there. So you've seen a lot of these perspectives uh, that, that are coming from every direction, people uh, putting their opinion out there about what they think the future of higher ed looks like. And, and a lot of these perspectives are pretty pessimistic. Yeah. Um, lots of hand-wringing, predictions of doom. I, you know, we've all heard the projection about the cliff. Yeah, yeah, all yeah, yeah. Small colleges are destined to fall off this cliff yep. come 2024. Yep. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is your balanced point of view on just about everything. So with that as a context, <laughs> would you give me your take on the impact of COVID-19 for higher ed? Do you see any silver linings? or opportunities that institutions should be looking to leverage? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I really do think anytime that there's disruption like this, we have opportunity uh, laid out before us in just huge waves. Um, I, I think um, that one of the great things that's come out of out of this uh, COVID disruption is that it has removed the fear of some things that some institutions dreaded, namely online learning or distance learning. And because institutions were forced into something that they had resisted, they found out how well it worked. And now I think they're far more open to be thinking about new ways of delivering education that they had been resistant to in the past. So I'm, I'm really grateful for the shakeup that forced people into change that opens doors of possibility. And, and uh, one of the great possibilities, one of the things I've been saying for several years, and I know you, you believe this wholeheartedly because of the work you've done, is that um, we can get to a place of seamlessness in the way we deliver. And we can deliver education through several modes at once. Um, and this, this new day that we're entering is going to, is already making institutions think about hybrid opportunities, whether I learn in a classroom however that's gonna look for health purposes, whether I learn online, whether I stay in a residence hall, and even if I stay in a residence hall, if I go to a classroom or still study uh, on a uh, monitor, all of those opportunities are now before us and we're gonna to have to figure out how to make that work and be interchangeable. <coughs> Excuse me, I think that's um, part of the, the beauty of what's, what's happened is it's just a, um, made us aware of possibility that we didn't used to think was available to us. Mm, boy, for sure. Well, and I'm, I'm you know, it, it makes me think about prior to March, had you told me that thousands of faculty across the country would be dipping their toe into online and pivoting on a dime, which is what's happened at so many universities. I, I would have been incredulous. And now you have all of these faculty, many at traditional institutions, 
who've been exposed to digital learning. And even though what we what we may think of as digital learning, you know, it, it might not have been as good as what we would like to see. Um, it has, it, you're absolutely right. It's opened up the doors and the possibilities in ways that I don't think any of us could have imagined a few months ago. Yeah, it certainly helped people get over hurdles of fear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, no, that's a great, great perspective. I, I know for others, it has created unbelievable fear. Um, so, I, you know, it's not a, I don't want to paint a completely rosy picture, but I'm excited about what it's done. Mm -hmm. One of the things yeah. we keep telling people in this moment, um, we have this opportunity to imagine voraciously. And um, I think people didn't have space to imagine as much as we do now. Let, let me ask you, I, I want to uh, just switch gears here a little bit. You and your colleagues at RHB work with scores of institutions across the country in addressing their marketing, their advancement, and their enrollment challenges. That's really the space where you have spent a lot of time over the last several years. And your track record of helping institutions move the dime is very impressive. I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing institutions mm -hmm. focused on right now in, in that space. How are you, and how are you advising your clients about how to plan yeah. for the future when, when we're in the midst of so much uncertainty? Do you have any specific suggestions that you can share? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Melissa. Um, it, by way of some background, we uh, we made a move this last year, this spring actually, to name Ken Anselment at Lawrence University the Dan Saraceno Chair of Enrollment Management at RHB. Dan Saraceno was the um, head of enrollment for both Santa Clara and at Notre Dame for many years. And Dan came to work with us, oh, maybe a half dozen years ago as a part-time consultant. And he's a, he's kind of one of the founders of an, the enrollment management model. So we named a chair in his honor and appointed Ken to, as a practicing enrollment management VP, to give us perspective from the, the field. He's just been involved in a number of interviews with his colleagues. It's been really interesting as he's explored how people are thinking in this moment. And when he's uh, started these conversations, the comment is always, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> I wish I could foresee just a little bit to know how this was gonna go. Or I wish I could look ahead two years so I could do better planning. And I think that's that's the, this this moment of frustration comes because we just don't know. But there are some things that we can we can do when we don't know. One of them is to uh, listen and ask questions. I think this very notion of um, having a podcast in the middle of this kind of moment in higher ed is perfect as we all learn from one another and gain perspective and listen to uh, what others are doing and how they're thinking and 
what creativity they're they're uh, putting out there. Uh, so I think this is a really good time to to be listening. The second thing I think that this is uh, a good moment for is um, some organizational assessment. Um, Rob Zinkin, who uh, worked at IU and was the manager of the uh, IU brand for their system, came to work at RHB about a year ago. And his work of late, and the question that has come up again and again and again with our clients is, okay, I, I'm probably going to have to change, but what do I change to? And um, what, what are the strengths I currently have on my team? How should we be organizing ourselves? And, and how will we best be best suited for the unknowns? And those organizational assessments have been powerful activities in this particular moment. So I, I, I don't think anyone should be wasting or waiting for something to happen. I think you can be proactive in, in your listening and assessing and evaluating um, how well equipped you are, um, even, even when you don't know what's gonna happen in the fall. For sure, for sure. And I, I think that uh, that exercise of assessing must be both a difficult exercise for institutions to do, but also uh, one that maybe is reassuring in some ways because it 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 gives the institutions yeah. at least some semblance yeah. of feeling like okay we're we're we have something we're trying to control yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think those kinds of activities uh, bring confidence, mm -hmm. and we're we're all desperate for that right now. Well, in in. And in that regard, let me ask you another question, because I, I know one of the books that you and I have talked about is, and it's a book that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few years, Nathan Graz's yeah. Demographics yeah. and the for Higher Ed, and I hope to get him on this podcast oh, yeah. soon. But, but for many higher ed leaders who are looking beyond the pandemic, who are doing that kind of assessment that you're talking about, Graz's projections have undoubtedly resulted in more than a few sleepless nights, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. What's, your, what's your opinion about his projections? And if you're advising an institution doing an assessment and looking to the next five to seven years, how do you best prepare or how should they be? How should colleges, universities be preparing for the road ahead? Do you believe the data? Oh yeah, there's, there's <laughs> it's hard to argue with the birth rate. Um, <laughs> I, I think even beyond the birth rate are changes in public opinion about the value of higher education and that combination of fewer bodies and uh, less interest in making the investment in higher education really creates uh, uh, turbulence uh, ahead for us couple of things I'd say. One is uh, we all need to thank Nathan for uh, grabbing a mirror and holding it up and making the space reality. Um, we, for years, I've heard people say, man, the future doesn't look so great. It could be really rough. We're going to have a rough time. And uh, Nathan, thankfully, put numbers to it. 
and uh, made some projections. So I'm, I'm grateful for that reality check. Um, and it allowed us all to get serious about what we're going to do, whether it means um, figuring out how we can uh, hang on to the students we have, be more attractive to attract more, or in some cases say, we're not going to survive and we're going to close our doors. But um, <clears throat> one of the things I've encouraged our clients to do is to take the data that Nathan outlines in that book or shows us pretty clearly and figure out your share of that right now. When you look at, I think it's on, might be on page 15 or 18, I can't remember which page, but it's one of the team pages, that that awful cliff chart, that can, that can look devastating. When you break it down to your institutions and the patterns your institutions has, has had, and you consider your share of that market, it, it gets a little more um, manageable. You're not looking at the entire cliff. You're looking at the feet you're going to fall. Okay. okay. And if you can look at the feet you're going to fall, you can make choices about whether or not you can live with a little drop or what what action you're going to take to gain some traction to hang on. Hmm. And that that's again part of that assessment work that yeah, you were exactly. previously. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you can calculate your market share. And, and once you calculate your market share, you can say, oh, we're talking about 15 students or we're talking about 2,000 students. Right. What does that mean? So, so for the smaller colleges that are the ones that everyone's saying are really at risk, are you are you saying that that maybe it's not quite as bad as what the initial assumption would be if you're just looking at the raw data at face value? Well, to a degree, I think there are some institutions for whom losing 15 students a year would be devastating. And some of them are hanging on by a fingernail and um, they, they won't be able to, to survive that. They won't be able to uh, manage if the economy uh, robs them of what endowment they have. And many of those institutions don't have substantial endowments to help them hang on. So I, there are lots of factors in there, but but Nathan's data alone doesn't mean that you're on the verge of collapse. Yeah, no, and that's and that's the important point that you're making, which I think is a great balancing. Um, it is a balanced perspective as opposed to just assuming that we are, we're all going to be impacted by the cliff to the same yeah. degree. Yeah. And, and, that's not and he makes the yeah. point that there are some institutions that are, are simply not going to feel this. Yeah. Um, but um, some will. Some will feel it yeah. painfully. Mm. Now, I know you're a big fan of the marketing guru, Marty Neumeyer. In fact, I think you're I think you first introduced him to me and his concept of finding your one true place in the universe. Yeah. 
Is that a still, is that still as relevant, that notion and important as it used to be? And if so, why, why is that important? And when so many colleges and universities look alike and sound alike, how do you even go about finding that one place that you can own that, that others may actually be interested in? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Uh, first, I love <laughs> Marty Neumeier. I'm a, I'm a big fan. He just, um, lays it out there and um, it's it's hard to argue with. It's good stuff. If you haven't read his work, read it. Um, but I, frankly, I think it's more important than ever. And, and in this climate, it's e essential. The one thing we get to control, Melissa, is our market position. We don't get to control brand. Our our audiences, our relationships get to control that. But we get to control position. We get to choose who we intend to be. And if you're brave enough and you've done your homework to find out what needs you can fill or what space you can occupy, if you've got courage, you can do something different than everybody else. If you don't have courage, it's it's tough to pull that off. But you can assess a place that you can own using your, your particular circumstances, your location, your people, your resources, your expertise. You can use all of those factors to define the space that only you own. And if, if you are the only one that owns it, you have the potential of creating a stronger, better you. If you insist on being just like everybody else, you're not helping yourself or your potential relationships, whether they're students or donors. But the more you define a space that you alone occupy, the easier it is to connect with those people who are looking for just that. So, so how, how do you actually do that though? If you're, if you're on the ground on a campus, how would you go about asking, answering that question? And do you know of any institutions or maybe you don't wanna <laughs> uh, share uh, publicly, but I'm, I'm curious if you have any good examples of somebody who has done exactly that. Yeah, I think there are several examples, but I, um, you know, we, we have a process that we use at RHB along the line, our, our watchword is coherence. And that is understanding yourself really well and understanding your audiences really well. And without clear understanding of yourself and others and their understanding of you and what you expect from each other, it really makes exchange difficult. So if you learn and can be honest about yourself, including your quirks and shortcomings, and you can assess who your audience is, you can do a really good job of, of finding a fit. In that coherence process for us, we ask three uh, critical questions. One is, what's true about us? 
what do we know to be true? And, and that's, that's an internal assessment. The second question we ask is, what do we say is true? One of the things that we find often is that institutions aren't willing to tell the truth about themselves. Mm. Either they're afraid to boast, and I'm shocked how many times I have to encourage our clients to tell their good story. Um, or they gloss over, they don't think what they have is cool enough. So they gloss over it and it sounds just like everybody else. We all want to be like Harvard. So we try to sound like Harvard, mm -hmm. even when we're not. And the third question we ask is, what do others believe to be true about us? And, and most of the time we don't stop to ask that question. And it's a critical question because if, if our audiences believe one thing and we're completely something else, we're never gonna, we're gonna never make that fit. So we have to understand where they're starting from. What, what do they believe to be true? And if it's, if it mirrors our truth, then we've got some room to make some things happen. But if it doesn't reflect who we are, we've got a, we've got a big task of not only marketing, but educating. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that'll be a different road to hoe. Mm. But uh, those three questions bring us to a point of understanding what our starting point is. It's not a vision. It's just a starting point. And if we know, if we can be honest about that true starting point, we can imagine what we could be and create a roadmap to get there. But without that true starting point, we're wandering in the wilderness in search of a vision. Uh, and um, and you've, we've got to be honest with ourselves. That is not an easy thing to do, though. I, you know, I will, I remember um, when you and your team were on the Bay Path campus several years ago doing the Circles of Influence, yeah. which is one of the process you're talking about and that you had observed as you went around the campus and for people that don't know bay path is a women's only college on the undergrad level and you had observed time and again our our students with their hair pulled back in ponytails and you watched over and over again how they did this they just pulled their hair back and they got about their business and it was part of the process of your bringing together this sense about Bay Pass sweet spot, that spot that we could own. Um, I don't know if you remember this or if you can, because it. I remember when you presented your findings, there being some resistance at first, because this, this notion that we recruit and we do a really good job with gritty, I think you yeah. used the word gritty students, yeah. was offensive. Yeah, to right, right. Yet you hit right on the nose um, part of Bay Pass sweet spot in terms of what we do really, really well. We're not a Smith College. Yep. We're not a Wesley. Yeah. Um, but we're a women's college yeah. in our own making. Yeah. yeah. You, you were those, those symbols, you know, the, even that action of taking that um, hair tie, that little stretchy hair tie uh, off a wrist and putting it up in a, 
ponytail really quick um, was that it was almost like rolling up sleeves mm-hmm. and getting down to work. And your students were, um, were take charge. I'm going to get into this and I'm going to get it done um, kind of women. And it was, it was, it was fun to watch that. You could hear it in the way they talked about their their work, their engagements, um, whether they were an athlete or or um, whether they were involved in a job out in the community. They they had stuff to be about, and they were getting it done. And um, that 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 symbol found in that simple expression of putting up one's hair. Um, wasn't wasn't something that everybody thought was a a hill to plant a flag on, right. but it but it was. Yeah, yeah. It was it was the expression of of a character of a uh, an attitude that is very appealing, and there are a lot of students who identify with that. For sure, yeah. And and over time, it has that notion has become central to how we yeah. how we do tell our story now, and it's it's very authentic to the the history and mission of the institution yeah. going back to its very early days. Yeah. So, yeah, when you think about the, your history, yeah, man. But it it is amazing how you pulled that out of a visual, you know, that you all observed, and that's the benefit of coming in. <laughs> so, you know, you, you don't have sometimes being too close to the institution, you you're not always able to see yeah. um, that sweet spot. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD. That's all but dissertation status behind with Bay Path University our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD Degree Completion Program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Bay Path University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. Every institution 
uh, has the potential to find this, to find their one true place? Um, yeah, it takes a bit of digging to find it sometimes. But I do believe every institution has that capacity. I don't believe that every institution has the will. Mm. Um, there are places that have really interesting, engaging, differentiating um, experiences and character that um, are unwilling to use that as a um, marker. And uh, they fear the difference that they are. Mm. Um, and those that's disappointing when you see tons of potential in an institution. Uh, but, you know, not everybody wants to be different. Yeah, I know for sure. Difference, difference is not always viewed as a positive right. thing. Um, and particularly, I think, by leaders, senior leaders, new yeah. leaders, perhaps. Because um, a follow-up question, I wanted to ask you, um, what gets in the way of institutions yeah. really embracing marketing. But I also I also wanted your take a little bit more on the difference between what you're describing as a process and what a lot of people think about when they think about branding. And and you know it, it invariably when an institution calls a new president, you almost <laughs> always see a branding campaign yeah. on the list of priorities. Yeah. Or the new president wants to launch a branding campaign. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, but I think that's different from what you're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. There are branding activities, getting a new logo, writing a tagline, choosing a institutional color, creating new, new recruitment materials or doing a new website. Those are all branding activities. But um, that should be the least of our worries. Um, rarely would I say, I've seen some really ugly logos, but rarely would I say that that logo is keeping anybody from enrolling or giving. But that's where we put our attention often, thinking that, oh, if we just had a new logo, and I, we joke here because you can kind of trace the history of logos by presidential shifts. <laughs> and, um, in fact, a logo is a mark. And I think every, every new administration wants to leave their mark on the institution. And one way to do that is change the, change the look, but, but that's not what we're talking about. We spend all of our energy on this process of discovery and clear and honest, truthful positioning. And, and then let the, let the branding part of it fall out of that. Mm. Um, a lot of times we watch institutions go the other way. Let's create all the branding stuff, the doodahs, and then will try to shape into that. And that's a nearly impossible task. So our approach is to understand enough about the true nature of that institution and the true nature of its 
constituents. In order to create a message and positioning statement that art articulates the beauty of that truth, and then let the let those things that we need, some of what we don't need as much as we used to, but um, those things that identify us and help us stand out visually emerge from those findings rather than the other way. Otherwise, it's just it's just a new Band-Aid. Um, it's not a, I, 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 we tend to work at the surgery part of it um, and figure out how it's going to look later. Mm. And is that, is that one of the reasons why these efforts sometimes fail to launch, especially with new presidents, or they might, they might launch, but, but you don't see yeah. a long-term. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, uh, Melissa. I don't, it, it becomes uh, an uncomfortable new frock um, mm -hmm. rather than something that is tailored to me. Um, and, and just because I get a new outfit, that doesn't mean it's an expression of me. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think community members, students, faculty, staff, even the administration gets, gets a new logo that doesn't fit or gets a new way of expressing themselves that doesn't fit, or new language that isn't their own. I'm big on language, and lang language has to be um, authentic, has to be genuine, has to be the way you speak, not the way somebody else speaks. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, I think these artificial approaches make, make people uncomfortable, and after a while they drop them or stop using them or defile them in some way because they don't fit. Let, let, let me pivot here sure. and ask you, I just saw a news clip that suggests that an extraordinary number of institutions are still accepting applications yeah. for the fall. Yeah. And so there's a lot of concern yeah. on the campus level about who's going to actually show up. Yeah. And, and frankly, we, we, we don't really know. So I'm, what are you <clears> telling <throat> your, your clients uh, how they, they should best be communicating with students and their families right now? Are there, yeah. are there any assurances that, yeah. that they can provide? Yeah, I'm going to go back to my truthfulness thing. The first, first thing I would say in response to that is that um, your your primary audience, your your uh, students, your faculty and staff, should be your greatest focus and interest in your communication right now. Make sure that you are communicating thoughtfully and clearly and transparently with your primary audience, your internal audience. Um, they are your greatest ambassadors and they can also be the ones who give the most misinformation. So make sure they know what's happening, what your plans are. I, I, I think there's been reticence to say anything because you don't know. And the fact is we don't know. Um, we, we've never been through this experience before, so we don't know what's gonna happen to MELT. Uh, we don't know whether or not students are gonna make last minute choices. 
and and that runs counter to every other pattern we've had in our past. So we're we're afraid to say anything, and instead of fearing saying anything, we think it's better to be more transparent to say, here's what we anticipate, or here's what we're planning on right now. Here's who's been involved with that planning. And I would be really open with um, prospective students and their families about this. They they realize that you don't know. You're not kidding them by suggesting that you know what's going to happen in the next few months, or if there's going to be a resurgence of COVID in October or November or December. But if you're transparent and say, um, this is, this is, with the information we have, this is the best, best thoughts we have right now. And this is how we're planning. Um, and um, I, I, I think that's the, the, the best way forward is to just be open and honest. Um, honesty and transparency build trust. And right now in this climate, um, people need to know they can trust you. For sure. Yeah. And you're really stating the obvious. I'm listening to you and thinking, well, of, of course, um, because none of us know. Yeah. And yet, and yet there is, you know, there is this presumption we take on ourselves yeah. that we have all the answers, well, which higher ed does, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but your, your words are very well taken, yeah. I think for, yeah. You know, we were seeing all those um, early studies about students were undecided and many of them were, 20% of them were saying they were going to change their mind. And I, and we all looked at those and said, well, last, last April, 20% said they were going to change their mind. That's not anything different. Uh, but, yeah. but hearing it in the context of COVID, it made us all go the chicken little route. And we thought the sky was falling. Mm. I, I'm talking to lots of institutions that are actually exceeding goals for all. Mm. And I'm reading reports that many institutions are going to be in fine shape. So it's not everybody and it's not, might not be you doesn't mean that we don't do go overboard trying to secure everything we can or keep the window open for for more applicants because there probably are families that are holding out yet so i sure wouldn't close the door but i also not sure i would panic if if you're if you're watching your your numbers thoughtfully, so another another good reality check. So so I I can't end this interview. I've got two more questions, and I can't I can't end it without asking you about your book yeah. coherence, which I mean what you what you're talking about leads us right into this. Yeah. How how telling the truth will advance your cause and save the world, and so. Yeah. You you've just uh, pub you've just uh, published a release. Is that correct? Yeah, we just did the second edition. Part of it was some of the examples and stories I used ten years ago. Um, 
when I first released the book, had run their course, were, were out of date. And um, I wanted to demonstrate that coherence was still uh, highly viable. And we were we saw new examples of it, but there were other things I wanted to include in there. I I did uh, we added I think five chapters to it, and um, I spent more time on the concept of positioning. But we've had some really wonderful things happen at RHB. One of them was uh, we hired a linguistics anthropologist, mm. and uh, Dr. Amy Hoseman brings a wealth of perspective as an anthropologist to those kinds of things that we were talking about when we're exploring what's true about us. Um, you mentioned circles of influence. It's an it's a interview process we go through that is kind of the inverse of focus groups, but it, it examines um, the experiences of a select number of students who are a microcosm of sorts of the institution. And Amy's perspective of any interview is just fascinating. And she walks away with observations that are uh, really powerful. So I asked her to write a chapter in this about that process. Um, I also talked, uh, added a chapter about why truth telling is difficult. And uh, she was very helpful in shaping that conversation. And why? And why is that? In a in a few sentences or oh, a few sentences or less. Yeah, there there are several reasons why. Sometimes we're doing a little um, covering of ourselves. Sometimes the fear of telling the truth might have the truth might have consequences, mm. and uh, our unwillingness to face those sometimes on a campus, it's about uh, loyalties. Um, sometimes it's about protectionism. And um, sometimes it's about resistance. And uh, in any of those circumstances, um, the, the politics that we use in higher ed sometimes uh, makes us, uh, even subconsciously, uh, move away from the truth. We're truth challenged. Um, but uh, she was really helpful in, in, in that exploration. I think that's a good chapter in the book. Uh, the second thing, uh, other contribution came from Alex Williams, our Vice President for Marketing Integration. And in the last uh, two, two and a half years, we've had a, a whole facet of our work to help our clients understand the relationship of data management to uh, the uh, marketing equation. All of our, all of marketing boils down to relationships, right? It's all about whether they're internal or external. It's all about relationships. And um, we have technology on our side now mostly in the form of um, customer relationship management software that allows us to track those um, exchanges and, and behaviors and um, interests and data about people. We have 
thousands of data points that we can capture for every relationship we own. And so managing that and, and finding a way to let technology serve us and building stronger relationships is great. So I had uh, Alex uh, address the power of CRM uh, technology. And the third, third big addition was one from Rob Zinkin, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, oddly, I don't know how oddly, it was perfect. He did his PhD at Creighton on the notion of coherence. And um, <laughs> who does that? And um, he did a really wonderful uh, study of a major uh, state university system to explore how coherence contributed to success. And so I asked him to write about that. Um, one of the things that we're learning through all of these things, this anthropological perspective, the, the tech, technological perspective, and this uh, wider uh, positioning and brand perspective, this coherence message, is, is there's a through line. And again, if, if we're all about relationships, with higher ed, we have a lifetime, a full lifetime of relationships. You're either before you get here as a student or while you're here as a student or after you leave as a student. And from the day you're born, we might encounter you as an, you know, alumni association sends out a welcome, a baby welcome gift oftentimes with a certificate or a diploma <coughs> or even an offer of a scholarship. And we carry people all the way to their death. And our relationships in higher ed to the, all of those constituents along that continuum have turning points, um, cycles of experience and exchange and touch points all along the way that we have the privilege of managing. And um, so we're, we're, we're thinking more broadly about what this task of uh, marketing looks like and how coherence can shape the, the, that whole continuum and to, to see it as a whole rather than a bunch of little pieces that are boy, off. Yeah, boy, that makes, that makes so, so much sense and is part of the broader thinking that you're, you're seeing everywhere about this notion of rethinking the, uh, the student uh, experience yeah, across, across the whole lifetime. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Which, wow. Well, congratulations on, on that. I'm, I'm uh, thinking it's going to have to be required reading in our doctoral program. Sounds good to me. I, yeah. No, Cause it's, you know, you're, you're talking about all these things that are so critical to institutional success and uh, rethinking the way we do things. And so it, it's, a great contribution to the to the field. So, 
So Rick, let me let me end by asking you, this is our signature question. Okay. We ask it of every guest. Okay. And it is this, what do you see ahead for higher ed that mm. we all need to be paying more attention mm. to? What needs to be on our radar and why? Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Really, am I up at night? Um, <laughs> if, if I am, it's usually about a an upcoming event or a detail that I want to make sure we've covered. Um, but what's, what's ahead for us is, um, I, I think is more of the same. I think we need to get in this mindset of, uh, constant change, uh, and, and a dynamism that <clears throat> hasn't always been attached to higher ed. Higher ed's been a pillar. Even even the symbols we use for higher ed are are heavy pillars and big buildings, and I I think that that notion is is disappearing quickly, and um, I I think we're even struggling with the word institution. Um, I think there's far more dynamism than what we've ever allowed higher ed to have. And even this thinking about it being a lifetime of exchanges is different uh, than, than where we've been. It's not just four years in a box or two years in a box. Um, it's far more organic, far more fluid. And to be honest, I think that's far more thrilling. So I think our future is seeing ways that higher ed fits into people's lives, not just as a one-time experience, but a series of engagements, uh, transactions, um, and, um, and relationship building uh, with real people that, that will change the face of, of higher ed. I, I think it's, uh, What's out there uh, is, you know, <laughs> almost anyone's guess, but I think it's going to be marked by greater fluidity and a um, greater ubiquity in the relationship between a person and their college or university. Mm. And that and that suggests volumes of opportunities. Oh man! Right. Oh, For <laughs> That's why we want to imagine voraciously. There's just yes, I know. You're bringing it all together in a beautiful, is, beautiful uh, way. Yeah. What, and what a great way, great way to to end this. I think your next book has to be about uh, that imagining voraciously. I think that'd be a great a great book title for your next. All right, book. I'll work on it. <laughs> yeah. So, Rick, this has been such a such a valuable conversation i you never disappoint me i always learn so much when we have a chance well, to chat and i know our listeners will benefit a great deal from from all that you've shared as well so thank you thank, thank you, you, for your time. you know i always love talking to you i my our conversations are among my favorites
I'm Melissa Morris Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with higher ed culture and climate change expert, Dr. Allison Cadlick. According to Dr. Cadlick, who is a founding partner of the consulting group SOVA, if institutional change does not make things better for students, something is missing. Effective, large-scale, student-focused change requires that everyone be involved and own the process. Join us for this conversation to hear Allison's helpful guidance for how to create the conditions for positive change on your campus. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.